This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Uh, we welcome you this hour to the Bible line to our first-time listeners. Just know that for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions you can call us locally at the 843 South Carolina Exchange, and that number is 843-525-1859. Maybe there's a portion of Scripture or a challenge in your personal life or ministry and you want uh, counsel on from God's Word, uh, there's a chapter you don't understand, or whatever it is, we will do our best by God's grace to respond to you and help you as best we are able to. Uh, you can also contact us directly here in the studio. You can email us to TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. As always, we will give priority to live callers. Uh, some call and dictate their question. They don't want to go on the air live, and we understand that. Uh, others will go on the air, and we're happy to receive your question however you'd like to give it. Again, 843-525-1859 is the number. If you'd like to call us here in this very first Bible line in August of 2022. Let's go ahead, Rick, and we'll get started this morning. All right. Very good, Pastor. We've got uh, all the lines are lit up right now. Just checking to make sure if there was anyone brave enough to go on live, but right. uh, apparently not. So let's go to our first um, uh, emailed question. Mona G. from Williamsburg, Kentucky says, do you have a sermon or literature on fasting? I'm trying to understand, truly understand how to apply it to my life. I do read scripture daily and listen to your sermons. I would like uh, to thank you, first of all, for sharing them. I'm currently in the book of Romans chapter four. While I've read the gospel many times, I still struggle to understand it at times. Your sermons have helped guide me through. Again, thank you. All right, Mon, a great question about fasting. It often comes up, and there are many, many reasons why we should fast and pray, and the two are typically, of course, linked together. I do have some sermons on it, uh, the Sermon on the Mount series, but I have addressed it from time to time. I think most recently in Daniel, the 10th chapter, because Daniel found himself fasting. So I thought, well, is this simply an Old Testament exercise or something we do today? It certainly is something we do today because Jesus taught it in the Sermon on the Mount, of course. Uh, he addressed three issues that the Pharisees sadly did to be seen by men and uh, to receive the praise of men. And Jesus said, basically, that's all the reward you're going to get, the praise of men. But then he um you know, focuses in on right motivation. He says, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full, but you, when you fast, not if you fast, but when you fast, 
anoint your head and wash your face. In other words, don't go around looking gloomy. Ooh, I'm fasting today. Pray for me. So that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who's in heaven. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Why should we fast? Well, it's a form of humility, for one. Uh, You might want to read Ezra chapter 8. He proclaims a fast that we might humble ourselves to seek God uh, for a safe journey. And so it's certainly a form of humility before the Lord. Uh, The psalmist speaks to the same effect of how he humbled his soul before the Lord in Psalm 35. So when you fast, you're basically saying, and of course it's accompanied with prayer, Lord, I can't pull this off in my own strength. And God honors humility. He gives grace to the humble but resists the proud. So it's not that you're earning grace. You're just acknowledging your need for it. Um, You know, Paul also reminds us that when I'm weak, I'm strong. So fasting has a way of simply intensifying your prayer life. It may seem somewhat like a paradox, but it's actually in our weakness that we will find strength and you know, when you when you fast, uh, you discover, oh, I'm kind of hungry, or I feel kind of tired, and and uh, that uh, little message from the brain, I need food, is also a message spiritually, I need to pray, whatever it is that God has put on my heart to pray for. As I mentioned, Psalm 35, uh, King David said, I humbled my soul with fasting. And so it is a form of humility, and it has a way of intensifying your prayer life. There is maybe an area that you're seeking direction on, a problem that you're facing, and you just need to see God's help. Jesus reminded his disciples of that uh, young boy that they couldn't cast a demon out. He said, this kind kind comes out by prayer and fasting. Um, Some of you may be at the precipice of a decision in your life, and you're looking uh, for guidance. I've never made, at least in the last... 30 or almost 40 years, I'd say, to be fair, any major decision in my life, uh, some, you know, mountain-moving decision that I didn't first seek the Lord in prayer with. Uh, And I get an example for that from the book of Acts. Uh, We are given a descriptive of what the church membership is like, and it's very diverse in 13.1 of Acts. And while they were ministering to the Lord in fasting— the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Now, Paul and Barnabas were called by God, obviously, but what the church at Antioch needed to know was, did God call them as a congregation to underwrite financially and through prayer and encouragement their ministry? And God made it plain to them that while they were fasting, the Spirit of God spoke to their hearts, set apart these two particular men for the uh, purpose in which he had sent them. Uh, A little bit later in Acts 14, uh, let me just turn over here to Acts 14 and verse uh, 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord. Obviously, elders uh, are the leaders of the local church, and a church will stand or fall based on its leadership. And so it's critically important that you have the right leaders. And the church here felt the need to really seek God in prayer and fasting that they might know the right person in which to choose. So God, again, gives direction. Um, 
Sometimes fasting, if you were with us recently in our series on Jonah, it's an expression of repentance. We see even unbelievers fasting in Jonah chapter 3 with sackcloth and ashes on their face. But you also see it in Nehemiah amongst the people of God where they are so broken over their sin. They say no to food and uh, they um, say yes to God. Uh, They say, God, we're serious about our commitment to get our hearts right with you. And that's important. You know, sometimes people confess sin, but it's really not confession. It's just kind of a shallow, I'm sorry, more for the consequence than I am maybe for the sin itself and what it's done to your heart, God, and that I've violated you. You know, sometimes, too, there's impossible situations that we face. I preached one time the book of Esther in a single sermon And if you remember Esther, who was born for the hour that she was raised up on, uh, as Mordecai reminded her, she's going to go into the king without his invitation, which could mean her death. And she said, look, if if I perish, I perish, but please pray and fast for me, so to speak. I need God's help. Uh, David sought God, if you remember on that occasion. It was an impossible situation. God said no, but still he wanted to give uh, God that opportunity when the baby uh, was very sick and near death. And I prayed, I fasted, maybe God would, would see mercy for me. So there's a lot of reasons why we should fast. It's not simply an Old Testament thing. And interestingly, fasting has both a personal and a public expression. There are times when we fast and no one should know, but then there are times that we should fast corporately and on occasion. I'll call the people of Community Bible Church to prayer and fasting, maybe for some specific event or issue. And I'll say, if you feel so led and assuming you have the health, um, then maybe you should skip a meal this week or maybe a a 24-hour fast. I know it's new to many people and it's kind of a neglected spiritual discipline in our day, but it is important. Great question. Let's go to the next one. I think we have a live caller. We do indeed. We have Susan on line one. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Go ahead, Susan. We're waiting for your question. Uh, Turn down your radio so you're not confused. Well, we may have lost Susan. She can call back. Let's go to the next question. All right. Very good. So uh, we'll go back to my other screen here. And uh, Makiva has written us before. She is a listener in Texas. And she writes, I know this is my third time asking Dr. Berge a question. The first answer he gave me was uh, to find a Bible-believing church. Then the second, I asked a question. He told me to give up some of my liberty so my husband doesn't stumble. Uh, she is in a oneness Pentecostal church. Uh, and she continues, I don't wear pants, but I did wear pajama pants. And he literally told me, this is her husband, literally told her that she was going to hell. I took Dr. Brogy's advice and just stopped wearing them because he would get so upset. He also told me to teach my kids, and I've been doing that, so this is where my problem is today. My husband found out that I was teaching the kids about the grace of God. I've been taking them through the discipleship course, and they seem to enjoy it, but my husband found out and told my kids not to listen to me. If I try to teach them anything about the Bible, he said to say no to me and walk away. This hurt me so bad because he's taken my voice and my influence away from my kids. He told my kids in my presence until I give him the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, he is looking for one name, or until I can prove where they were baptized in the titles, they are not going to listen to anything I say about the Bible because 
I have a damnable doctrine and going to hell with it. This is what he literally said to them in my presence. I am so hurt. I don't understand how I'm getting spiritually abused because of my belief in the Trinity and having my kids turn on me. Not only do they not listen to me when I mention anything in the Bible, but they've also lost respect for me and talked back. They've started fighting amongst themselves. There is so much division in my home, I don't know what to do. I don't say anything to my husband, and he comes home and starts making remarks like, you got to be baptized in Jesus' name or you're going to hell. He says these things out of the blue, just walking through the house. Then he randomly goes to the kids and gives them a pop quiz. How many gods are there? Which I never deny there is one God, but he keeps telling me if I believe the Trinity, I believe three gods. It's so annoying because I keep telling him that's not true, but he tells my kids this. I know this is a a lot, and I've asked two questions already, but I'm at a loss, and I just don't know what to do. I can't talk to my kids about God, and it's killing me. I've been a submissive good wife, and I've been given up my liberties for the sake of not offending my husband. He wants me to be Pentecostal, look Pentecostal, and I feel like an imposter and a fake no matter how submissive I am. As long as I believe in the Trinity, I am lost to him and backslidden. I really need some guidance. I have no one in my whole community because they're all Pentecostals, and there's no one to talk to. Well, um, let me just make sure that you are strengthening your heart through sound Bible teachers, that you you know, stay the course. You don't want to obviously give up, and uh, you're not being fed in this church that affirms oneness Pentecostalism. And for those that are listening, and maybe that's a new phrase to you, oneness Pentecostals may be one of their key representatives would be someone like T.D. Jakes. They deny the doctrine of the Trinity. They affirm the oneness of God, but they deny his triunity. They deny that he exists co-eternally, co-equally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so you're right. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. Uh, James affirms it in the New Testament. I have a whole a series of uh, teachings on this on my course in pneumatology for those who want to study it. But what oneness Pentecostals teach, and I say oneness Pentecostals to distinguish them from other Pentecostals, because certainly not all Pentecostals deny the doctrine of the Trinity. Many are Trinitarian and very sound, at least in that area of their teaching. But they would say, one is Pentecostals, well, the Father at times becomes the Son, the Son becomes the Spirit, the Spirit becomes the Father. So they don't exist as co-equal, co-eternal persons. And of course, that's heretical. Uh, The doctrine of the Trinity is affirmed even in the Old Testament. Um, Let me remind you too, my sister, that Jesus said, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. So you can't let this discourage you, because sometimes it's part of following Christ that the enemies even come even within your own house. I, I think you probably have more influence than you realize over your children. Uh, yeah, your husband's forbidding you, but, you know, you can still pray for them earnestly. God can give you the victory through prayer. You love those children unconditionally. You just uh, keep loving them, affirming them, building them. A mother's heart is such a powerful tool towards her children. 
And so don't be discouraged. Don't, you know, oh, my kids are rejecting me, therefore I'm going to reject them. No, you show them unconditional love. Love has a way of winning out. Love can cover a multitude of sins, we are reminded in the New Testament. So keep pursuing the course. Look for opportunities. You can share a lot of things from the first person. Oh, God showed me a wonderful verse today. And, you know, again, your husband can silence you verbally, but I don't think he's going to beat you. It doesn't sound like it's come to that point. So you just keep obeying the Lord. You have an admonition to teach your children, to bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. But again, you love them to death. You affirm them. You build them up. And that's going to give you a window into their heart. This might be, to go back to our first caller, a reason for you to spend a little bit of time in prayer and fasting each week over your family situation. God can sometimes, in a moment's time, turn a light switch in a man's heart. And God can certainly do that in your husband's heart. So you do everything that you can to respect him without, of course, uh, denying your biblical convictions over the doctrine of the Trinity. Appreciate your question. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, we did have a caller that dictated their question. Um, It was a a woman who says this, uh, her family now has a second child, and the mom has been staying home while the husband works. They tithe regularly. Although they've cut expenses everywhere possible, they've been cutting into their savings, and that is now dwindling. It seems that either she'll have to work or they'll need to cut from their tithe. Which is the better option, or do you have other advice from Scripture? It is their desire to both tithe and for the mother to be a worker at home. Well, I appreciate what you're saying, and of course, God's ways never contradict his word, and God says a woman should be a worker at home, and and my hat is off to a woman who has to work to put food on the table, but most of the time, that is not the case, and certainly, these are challenging times, and I'm afraid they're going to get much more challenging down the road, and it will be seen and expressed probably across the board. You can't spend money that hasn't been worked for without eventually inviting inflation. And that's what's happening now. You have too many dollars chasing too few goods, and inflation just continues to accelerate. And I believe that, you know, there are many people in our world who want to see, quote-unquote, a great reset. It will bring the Antichrist, in that, it, but it will bring also an economic crash And so now, you know, we're talking about um, building the country a better way and a new economic plan to borrow more money. You can't borrow your way out of debt and out of inflation. I mean, this is just total madness. But when a nation is in judgment, they think with an upside-down mind and they think in a distorted way. Uh, There's probably more things that you can do that maybe you haven't thought of. Certainly, you could grow a garden and maybe provide more food for your family than you might realize. Even a winter garden in this part of the nation, uh, we're able to do that. Uh, Some places obviously can't. I'm not sure where they're calling from. I think it's a local call, you said, yeah. So you can even do winter gardens. You can earn money from your home. Uh, There's nothing in violation of Scripture from that. A Proverbs 31 woman, people want to make her a real estate agent and everything else, and they just totally abuse and misrepresent the text. Uh, But from her home, she is providing 
uh, means of, of funds. And sometimes people think, well, if I go out and work, now I'm going to make more money. And in reality, they often don't. By the time they discover, look, my opportunity to to do some things for my family that now I have to pay someone to do, um, the change in tax brackets sometimes, the increased costs in clothing and uh, gas and wear and tear on the car, and now your second vehicle, if you have one, is no longer considered a pleasure vehicle. But uh, look, things may get a lot more challenging in the days ahead. So stay the course. Don't give up. Okay, you know, you say my savings is dwindling. Well, okay, is your faith ultimately in your savings plan or is it in the Lord? You know, it may dwindle to zero, but God promises to supply your needs and you have to walk by faith. And so you never cut the tithe to your local church wherever you're attending. Uh, God will honor that. I'd, I'd be afraid not to tithe. I view the tithe as a starting point, but it's certainly a point of obedience. It's not driven by tithes alone, and that the Scripture says, oh, they robbed me of tithes and offerings. That is to say that it's not an issue of percentages. It's an issue of the heart, and sometimes God would call a person to give an offering above the tithe. But don't don't stop obeying God in that realm. You just get on your knees and your face before God. Many times God wants to drive us to prayer in weakness. And he wants to show that he is our father, that he is able. And we carry these problems over in our own minds and with other people. And, and we talk about them, uh, you know, to ourselves when we really need to be in our face before the Lord and pleading his promises God loves it when you plead his promises, when you read his word back to him. And I promise you that if you will go in faith, God will meet your needs. I'm not saying that you're going to become a rich person. You may struggle for years to come. I, again, I think we're approaching a time where the whole country is going to struggle unless there's some intervention in light of the mag- incredible debt that we are taking on as a nation and we keep growing it. It's gonna the the whole thing's gonna snap. But the most um, the people who are gonna be in the best position to be taken care of are those who are seeking the Lord and walking by faith. Thank you for the question. All right, very good. We do have Susan back on the line. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. I have a question about the Bible verse: "Judge not, lest ye be judged." Okay. And I want to know sort of what your interpretation of that is and what it means. Well, it's a good question. It's a, a verse that is typically taken out of context. We live in a day where if you have any kind of standard of righteousness, which is, you know, being rejected more and more, if you if you teach, say, sexual morals uh, in the reference to extramarital, premarital, uh, perverted sex, et cetera, et cetera. People say you're judging them. Judge not, lest you be judged. And uh, that's a verse that they quote. Um, but Jesus's point is, is that we're to judge with righteous judgment. In fact, he commands us to judge in John seven twenty four. So he's not contradicting himself. He's actually affirming the same truth in a different context, nonetheless, but it's the same truth. So in John 7 and verse 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And that's what he's reminding uh, these folks of, that they can judge according to appearance and, and find a, a, you know, a speck in someone else's eye when they have a log in their own. 
and they're not dealing with their own heart. In fact, contextually, he is assuming a judgment because he will go on to say specifically, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So there's a sense here in which we are to withhold the gospel because we are able to make a judgment based on the revelation of Scripture that this person is uh, basically acting like a a dog, acting like a, um, a pig, and they are not uh they don't need to hear the gospel there's there's a time when god says withhold the gospel pearl that involves judgment on your part and so again i have a whole message on this if you go to searchthescriptures.org if you go to the app store and just type in one word search the scriptures you'll see a little blue triangle you can download the app and then you can type in Matthew 7, and you'll see the messages that are available from Matthew 7, and you can listen to an hour-long teaching on this single verse of Scripture, and I think it will be extremely helpful to you to think your way through. But here, again, is the major abuse of the verse. Because we live in a day when people do not want to follow God's ways, and we are living in that time frame where sexual mores are being thrown out the window— and this is especially the realm, and people will just say, judge not lest you be judged. Listen, I'm not judging a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon to say they are not Christians. Why? Because they both deny the deity of Christ. And Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he, contextually God in human flesh, you will die in your sin. I'm not judging them because that's a judgment God has made. I'm not saying that the Pope is... um You know, uh, when I say he's wrong for denying in the last year that Jesus is the only way to heaven, oh, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's denying the very words of our Savior when he begins to open up the Roman Catholic Church to this broad way, to this multiplicity of ways to God. That's heresy. That's wrong. So those are judgments God makes. I'm not judging someone to say that, (coughs) excuse me, homosexuality is wrong. Why? Because that's a judgment God has made. And so Paul would say, you know, uh, don't be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he gives a list of fornicators. That's the Greek word porneia. It's used of sexual immorality, uh, most specifically of premarital sex. Uh, nor idolaters. Idolatry is anything that you worship above God. Paul can say that greed is idolatry. He says in another passage, sexual immorality is idolatry. And really, uh, it's become an idol in our nation, sexual immorality. People worship it. Adultery, that's not the word point A, it's moike. It refers to extramarital sex. Then he mentions effeminate and homosexuals. Uh, That is male prostitutes, the active and passive partner. Uh, the man, the woman, the wife, so to speak, in the lesbian or homosexual relationship. He gives this list, and he said that people who are living like this have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. They can be saved because such were some of you, but you're doing people a disservice. You're lying to them to say that, well, transgenderism is fine. You know, our vice president yesterday, the vice president of the United States, 
begins a speech by sharing her pronouns. I mean, this is just wickedness. This is just depravity. This is an upside-down Adikamas mind that denies the basic truth that God created the male and female. And it's a sad day, but it's the day that we're living in. All right, good question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, we have Alberto from Savannah on the line. Thanks for holding. You're on the Bible line. Well, good morning, Dr. Cole Rory and Rich Portioner. My question is that a lot of sinners say they don't have a problem with Jesus, just with Christians. Well, that, to me, that's because Jesus is not here on the earth. If Jesus was here on the earth and putting out all their sins, they will have a big problem with Jesus. And also, if they have a problem with the Christians, the sinners, who is the bride of Christ, then they do have a problem with Jesus. So what is your opinion or answer on this question? Well, you make a good point. You know, if you remember on the Damascus Road, uh, Jesus said to Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, wait a minute. Paul had never laid a hand on the person of Christ. What do you mean, persecuting me? Well, whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren. Now, contextually, that I know refers to the Great Tribulation period and the way folks will uh, deal with Jews, but the principle still is eternal. You do to me. Whatever you do to the least of my brethren, that's how you're treating me. And so the fact that Saul was abusing the church, which is the body of Christ, means he was abusing the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, um, people may have problems with Christians, maybe because they are less than consistent or they're hypocritical. And of course, the wheat and the tear, I will remind unbelievers, will be mixed together in the church. And so there are many people who name the name of Christ who are not born again. They are actually on the broad road that leads to destruction, though they associate themselves with Jesus, as the Lord illustrates in Matthew 7, they preached in his name, they cast out demons in his name, they did miracles in his name, and all those things can be done by unbelievers. Satan is a great imitator, but it doesn't change the truthfulness of God's word. And so you always bring it back to Jesus into the word of God. Is the Bible the word of God? Is Jesus Christ God in a body? If he's God in a body then everything he ever said is true. And he said that he would inspire those who would come after him to give us the New Testament. That's precisely what he has done. And so the question that people have to ask and answer is, Jesus, God is in, is the Bible true? If the Bible is the only book God wrote, then we have a plumb line by which we can discern what's truth and what's error. And I wrote a little book. It's available on Amazon. When people come to meet the pastor, we give it to them for free. I don't make any money on books. But it's uh, how to prove the Bible is true. And I go through five proofs on showing the uniqueness of the Bible, the only book God wrote. And so then their argument is not with me, even if they don't think that I'm consistent. Their argument ultimately is with the Word of God. So you always want to bring it back to the person of Christ into his word. Good question, Alberto. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Marty from Columbia wrote, I was wondering if you knew anything about The Well, a men's Bible study group, 
and also about a new church planting group called Recovery.Church. And what do you think about uh, these, if you know anything? Don't know of either of them, so I'd have to uh, investigate it. So, uh, Rick, bring it up on the next Bible line. Shoot me an email on that one, and I'll go to their doctrinal statements and find out more about them, and maybe I'll be able to respond to Marty's question. There's always new groups, new ministries popping up endlessly, and so, but I'm happy to do my best to do a little research. Let's go to the next question. All right. Catherine from Bluffton writes, I have listened to a pastor on the web who has a daily lesson which he ends with a decree and a prayer. In one example of the decree, he states, I decree that America will be saved. Is there any scriptural authority for the believer to decree anything? No, this is uh, from the whole name it, claim it theology. Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Myers, et cetera, et cetera. Just utter heretics. I decree in the name of Jesus you're healed. I decree in the name of Jesus that your finances will be multiplied 10 times or whatever it is they're decreeing. You know, so let's define some terms. Certainly there are decrees in the Bible. If you remember Cyrus, who's mentioned in Ezra and in Isaiah, you know, he decrees that a temple uh, for the Jewish people be rebuilt. If you remember Hezekiah, because of the people's uh, disobedience, he sends a decree from Dan to Bathsheba uh, that the people celebrate the, the Passover. But a decree is only as valuable as the person making it. I could stand out here on the highway in front of us, the speed limit's 45, and hold up a sign and say, the new speed limit is 75. But uh, Rick's shaking his head, yes, yes. But I don't have any legal authority to make that decree. And so when people make decrees in prayer, uh, unless there is some you know, specific promise from God, uh, we have no right. And so today we've got the Kenneth Copelands and their argument, they use a couple different arguments, the little God theology, and they say, well, look, uh, God spoke it and it was done. Well, yeah, God spoke the universe into existence in six days because he's God. Well, we're little gods. Well, the word Elohims, it's in the plural there, is in reference to, um, you know, judges and it's not that we become God. Well, we're little gods, and so therefore we can speak. And uh, look, that that's just utter nonsense. And, and a lot of, too, what's kind of interesting, a lot of, uh, I did a, a paper on this in seminary about prosperity theology. In fact, I have at searchthescriptures.org uh, a course on uh, pneumatology and uh, there's an appendix on what we call prosperity theology, where I deal with this whole thing of God's will to make you healthy and wealthy and so on, and everything's caused by a demon, and we need to cast out demons. And I try to put it in some biblical perspective, but a lot of their theology comes out of the book of Job, like Elothas, who you know says, you know, we can make these decrees. And then at the end of Job, of course, God gives us assessment of these guys, and it's and it's not very, very good. Uh, they also use that passage. It's found only in Mark. And, and Jesus said, truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe, and you have received them, and it will be granted to you. And so 
they take out of context the verse that precedes it, where Jesus says, have faith in God. And so when he mentions here a mountain being taken up, uh, the term mountains, it's a popular figure of speech of some insurmountable problem. Sometimes we use it even today. We say, well, we have a, a mountain of a problem. Well, the Pentecostals and the Copelands say, well, we need mountain-moving faith. Well, we do, but understand that Jesus is using hyperbole to make a point. In Zerubbabel, in the book of of, um, uh, Zechariah, does the same thing, uh, where he describes a, a mountain of a problem by getting his temple rebuilt. But Jesus, if you remember, he's making this point in reference to, remember, it's the final week in Jesus where it's symbolic in that context where the fig tree represents Israel and he curses it from the root up. The root's not dead because God was not finished with Israel, but from the root up, above the root, the tree withered. And of course, they said, wow, Lord, that's the tree you cursed. And Jesus reminds Peter that while things may be humanly impossible, they're not impossible with God. And so it comes down to not name it, claim it, but is it the will of God? And if we have a promise from God that it is his will, then we can pray without doubting because we have a specific promise. And this is the confidence we have before him that if we ask anything, John will write, according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests we've asked from him. So if we know it's the will of God, we know he's heard us and he can answer us. And in that context, we can use mountain moving faith. We can believe God. God is not calling us to move physical mountains. He's just, Jesus will sometimes use dramatic speech to make a dramatic point. Like if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. And he uses there the right eye, the right hand. Well, you still have the left eye and the left hand to execute the sin. He's just saying there has to be a holy hatred for sin if you're going to have victory over it. But he's not literally calling us to cut out our, cut off our right arms or pluck out our right eyes. If he were, we'd all look like pirates with patches over our eyes and a hook on our hand. He's simply telling us in Mark 11, have faith in God, and if something is God's will, then you can pray in faith. And what the Pentecostals are doing are basically say, have faith in faith, or have faith in feelings, and not in the living God and the promises of his word, and they just totally rip things out of context, and that's a gross abuse of Scripture. 843-525-1859, if you have a question on today's Bible line. And we have Woody from Ridgeland, South Carolina, on line one. Thanks for holding. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, uh, Rick and Carl. How are you all doing today? Hey, good, Woody. How are you? What's going on? Great. Thanks for taking my call. I think we talked about this, and you told me to call in on the Bible line. I've had uh, several occasions with two different cults, just, you know, in, just in passing a life. One was on an airplane where the people were saying Jesus cannot be God because we know that they believe that Jesus died, but they, uh, they don't believe that he's God because God cannot die, which, yes, I agree with that. 
So I explained to them, you know, I support the deity of Christ. Like from Mark 2, he shows omniscience, he heals the paralytic, and he forgives sin, things only God can do, things like that. And But they, they uh, refused to believe that. And from what I understand, if I and this is basically my question, is my understanding correct, that because he is 100% man and at the same time 100% God, the fact that he became God in a man, that is the portion of him, if you will, that dies when he dies on the cross. So is my understanding of that correct? Uh, or yeah, yeah, no, I remember. Uh, I, yeah, I remember you came up and asked me this in the hallway, and there was a whole line of people behind me and visitors, so I didn't answer. So I'm glad you, I'm glad you called in. Um, let's define some terms. The, the term death just means it's a Greek word and a Hebrew word, and it carries the connotation of separation. And even if people didn't understand Greek or Hebrew, just reading the text would indicate something's in view here. When God commanded uh, Adam, from any tree in the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And it's emphatic in Hebrew we might say it's highlighted, it's underlined in red, the day, meaning the very day you eat, you will indeed die. And so when you see what Adam did along with Eve, it didn't look like they died that very day, but death is just means separation. And of course, they did die that day. They died spiritually. Uh, they were still very much physically alive, though they began to die physically. And so now we're born dying. We're born getting older and older and older. But they did die spiritually. And so Paul, writing to living, breathing people, can say in Ephesians, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. He can describe the uh, immoral widow who's dead even while she lives. And in her immoral lifestyle that denies that she's met the Lord, and therefore she's not worthy of being put on the special list that is uh, focused on believer, believing widows who have served the church in terms of their care and support for her. She's just a lost woman, dead even while she lives. And, of course, there's physical death. And so at physical death, there is a separation where the soul and the spirit, the immaterial portion of man, leaves the physical body. But we continue. God alone has immortality. But God made us with the eternality that once we are created, we will live forever, ultimately either in heaven or in hell. And then, of course, there's the eternal death uh, where the Bible speaks of eternal retribution. So Paul says a day is coming when God will deal out retribution to those who don't know God and those who do not um, obey. It's, it's the Greek word to listen under, uh, to respond, you could say, to the gospel of the Lord. And so... The question at hand is, if Jesus is God and Jesus died on the crosses, that mean God died. And so this is their argument for denying the deity of Christ. But let's also say that at least they're consistent because uh, they don't teach that there is a place of eternal retribution, uh, that there is a literal place called hell. Um, and so at least they're consistent. So let's talk about death and what actually happened. Certainly Jesus, when he was on the cross, he did die physically in his humanity, but his humanity and his deity are inseparably combined into one person. 
uh, but on the cross, his physical body died. His heart stopped beating. Um, but the scripture says he gave up his spirit. He committed his spirit to the Father. And so in human form, Jesus' uh, body was separated from his spirit. And so he could say to the thief on the cross, you know, today I'm going to be with you in paradisus, in paradise. And so he did experience a spiritual death in that he shouted from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so as an infinite person in a finite period of time, he could accomplish what you and I as finite people will take an infinite period of time to pull off in hell. Jesus was forsaken of the Father. But in being forsaken of the Father, did he ever cease to be God? Of course not. Uh, God is eternal. He has no beginning or end. And so the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so, A, the Bible affirms, contrary to J.W. doctrine, that God would become a man. A baby will be born, and the baby's name will be called Mighty God. And they really have to manipulate the Scripture. Sadly, you know, the I had a, a guy from uh, Russia recently in the church, and he came up to me. He was visiting after, and he said, you know, this was, like, really great. He said, you're, like, teaching right from the Bible, and I don't have a Bible, so I had to pull it up online. And I said, oh, well, what translation were you using? And he pulled out his phone. He says, I, it's called here the New World Translation. <laughs> I said, that's the translation that's done by Jehovah's Witness. It's a terrible translation. And I said, come to meet the pastor and I'll, I'll give you a Bible. But I said, even if you're going to use an online one, don't use that one. I said, the guys who produced it, they didn't know any Greek or Hebrew. They just purposely went through the Bible, manipulated it. You know, there's over 300 English translations, and there's only two, the New World Translation, and then one that was done in England and London by another deity-denying apostate group uh, that ever uh, took the Scriptures and manipulated them and wrote out the passages that affirm the deity of Christ. But that's what they have to do to uh, put forth their evil, false doctrines. So, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, he, he, he left his body uh, temporarily um, on earth, went on a divine preaching mission. He was still very much alive. Uh, he committed his spirit to the Father, and, and the Father had him in paradise, and then preaching in Tartarus, as Peter reminds us, but his divine nature never died. It couldn't die because he's eternal. Um, and in the same way, our bodies die physically, but our soul and spirit will be somewhere, contrary to Jehovah's Witness that teach the doctrine of annihilationism for unbelievers. No, Jesus describes unbelievers as experiencing eternal death. Um, in fact, he uses the word ionion for the eternal God in First Timothy to describe eternal life and to describe eternal death. So to say that death is not eternal in the place of retribution, where Jesus uses it in Matthew chapter 25, would be to say that heaven is not eternal, would be to say that God is not eternal. So again, it's just a manipulation of the Scripture. So what I do sometimes with J.W.'s, Woody, is, you know, you can argue to you're blue in the faiths with them, though some of them are in a cult because they're searching, they're looking 
for truth. They uh, were first confronted by a cult, and so they embraced something because at least they were saying something when most Christians are sitting on their hands today and doing nothing. And so the cult was the first to reach them. But if a heart is open, God will get the truth to that person. And so some people, you're casting your pearl before swine, and you have to use discernment to go back to the previous question of the day. But other people, they are really searching. So I might ask them, well, tell me, on your understanding of the Bible, what do you think the Scriptures teach in reference to how a person gets into heaven? And they're going to give a works righteousness, or the new earth, they might say. Okay, uh, the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, sometimes they don't even like to use the term heaven, depending on even, there are sects even within Jehovah's Witness, just like there's denominations within Christianity, so it depends on the particular JW. They're not always consistent all the way through. Um, but whatever it is, how do, how do you get there to this place of promise? And they're almost always 99.9999, they're going to give you a works righteousness. So they haven't destroyed in the New World Translation the passages that teach salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And so you go to some of those passages like Ephesians 2, like Romans 4, like Colossians 1, like Hebrews 10, um, and like John 3, and uh, and you look at passages that teach salvation through the cross alone, and then you can begin to knock them maybe off center and say, well, look, if you were off kilter on this particular doctrine, maybe you're wrong on some of these others. You can get them to start thinking. So good question. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and we just had a local listener call in and dictate their question. From Revelation 7, verse 14, who are the people who have washed their robes in white who came out of the Great Tribulation? Well, it's a, it's a great question. In fact, I'm going to briefly touch on this this Sunday. I'm doing a message at the beginning of the end. And so we are in a series of God's prophetic schedule as we're between total book exp- expositions. And so when we come to this... Um, uh, this section, we will be dealing with the coming tribulation. We've looked at some of the events preceding and leading up to the rapture of the church, and now we're beginning to move into that section of time called the Great Tribulation Period. And, of course, uh, Jesus said, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world, and then the end shall come. And people often say, Oh, well, you know, we just reached a 100 new people groups and we're really getting close to the end, and as soon as you reach 100 new people groups, you discover, well, here's 300 that we didn't know about in it, and it just seems like, um, how are we ever going to pull this off? We don't uh, stand back and say, well, it's an impossible task. No, we go in the power of God. We preach the gospel to every creature under heaven, and when God opens a new people group, we do our best, but the truth is, is that someday, the gospel of the kingdom will go to every single people group in the world. And then the end, and the end there is in reference to the second coming. When is it going to happen? Contextually, this promise will be fulfilled during the time of the great tribulation period. That's the promise. And so what we discover in Revelation 7 are, is this great number of people. They're called the bondservants of our God in 7.3 
who are put a seal on their foreheads, which makes them indestructible. And as you read through the portion, they're all Jewish people. And so you have 144,000 Jewish evangelists or missionaries, as it were. And after these people are sealed, and these are the ones who are going to preach the gospel, not to mention there'll be two witnesses that um, he is going to describe a few chapters later, and an angel who will preach an eternal gospel. Angels right now don't preach the gospel, but God is going to use an angel, and I don't know how he'll do it. You know, he'll speak, and maybe it will automatically be translated into a thousand languages, but it will happen. But through this witness of these 144,000 after these things, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation of all tribes and peoples and tongues. So there's no unreached people groups here, so to speak. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, here are a picture of the righteousness that God has imputed to them, They're worshiping God, crying out salvation to our God who sits on the throne. And of course, um, then one of the elders, remember there's 24 elders representative of the church because the church was caught up in Revelation 4.1. And uh, one of the elders uh, answered saying to me, "Uh, these are clothed in white robes. Who are they and where have they come from? So that's what you're asking. And that's a good question. They asked it too. I said to him, my Lord, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So these are tribulation saints. There are different saints in the Bible. There are Old Testament saints that the psalmist speaks of. There are church saints that these letters in the New Testament describe very often in the opening verse. And then there are tribulation saints. So these are not church saints. The church has been removed. These are tribulation saints. And there are still yet to come millennial saints as well. Um, So these tribulation saints have come to faith, and they are beheaded, as the Revelation will later describe. Why are they beheaded? Because they refuse to take the sign and mark of the Antichrist. They refuse to worship him. They refuse to follow him. And they pay the ultimate cost. And so there they are, Lord, how much longer uh, before you will bring judgment on these who are judging your people? So it's a good question. Uh, These things are literally actually going to happen just as all the prophecies for the first coming were literally fulfilled. So will the prophecies be for the second coming. Come join us this Sunday at Community Bible Church. I'm preaching a sermon, The Beginning of the end. And we're looking at some of the signs that Jesus speaks of earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars and apostasy. What's their relevance for today? Um, How do we uh, understand and apply these to our lives? Come find out Community Bible Church. Go to communitybiblechurch.us for meeting times and places. God bless you as you walk with Jesus Christ. Mm 